Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I'm excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon. We are continuing our study in the book of Romans, and we have been dealing with Romans 13 and some of what it has to say about our relation to government. Um, We talked last week about how um, we relate to government, and so now we're devoting our attention to the second half with how government pertains to us, and more importantly, how it relates to God. And so without further ado, let us read Romans 13, picking up in verse 4, and it says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, as I said, last week we discussed our relationship to government both when it is righteous and when it is wicked. And this continues to unpack that. And we continue to that other half of this passage and consider what scripture has to say about governments. While referring to examples from church history, I'll strive to unpack this. And so it seems fitting to start with that first phrase, for he is God's servant. Paul starts off with a statement of what government should be. For he is God's servant for your good. This is what government should be, and a right understanding of government plays into this passage. Often we struggle to interpret this passage. This is a passage that has been interpreted differently virtually with every generation of the church. That often this is, we read into this text differently in each generation as each generation of the church has dealt with government differently. And so it's been a challenge to find that objective interpretation that goes across the board. That is not um, just in our time, but is what is the timeless interpretation. And that's what I will strive to find today. This is what I've been trying to dig into with Romans 13. And as we did last week, we will refer to the Old Testament with the way God dealt with kings in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 19, 
says Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people, from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So despite what circumstance may preside, every person, saved and unregenerate, rulers, kings, and subjects, all live quorum Deo, which is to say, before the face of God. And every decision that the state makes is made by an authority that is under authority. The judges of Israel were instructed to understand that they were accountable to God for their govern governance and would answer to him for wicked undertakings. And we understand through the Old Testament that God gave his people a law and that by abiding with him as characterized in that law, it shall go well for them. However, God also exacted justice on the Canaanites according to the same law. The law of God was unspoken but present for all of God's creations. Because we were made in the image of God, there's this imprint of it in us. And so God held us all to the standard of the law, both New Testament and Old Testament. God gave them a law, and there are many different um, applications of the law. It's not just a one function. It served many functions. But one of those principles was showing those the magistrates that God raised up how to rule. There's a very important passage in Deuteronomy 17 that promises that God will instill a king someday, and that that king is to write in his own hand a copy of the whole law, and he is to meditate on it every day. And that is because the law is good. It is good for society. What God has called good is good for people. That God didn't just make these laws because he wanted to enforce things that weren't natural to us. But God's law is inherently good. And what flows out of adherence to that law, not from a legalistic manner, but from a pursuit of holiness, is good. Abraham Kuyper, a preacher from the 1900s, brings some clarity to this relationship of God's law to the state. And he says, Thus all transcendent right in God, in which the oppressed lifted up his face, falls away. There is no other right but the imminent right which is written down in the law. The law is right, not because its contents are in harmony with the eternal principles of right, but because it is law. Romans 7.14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In short, God's law is not on par with the laws of man. His law is superior. His law is transcendent law that is built into our nature. And we are made in that image, and so it's part of who we are. But we also have a depraved mind, so there's a little bit of balance there, that we have this yearning for what is right. But we do not find in our depravity the ability to be right. Which is why 
regeneration is so essential to um, this whole process that if we enforce the law as solely just morality, we've missed the point. Because the law is only good for us when we are made new by this law through Christ, the fulfillment of it. And so we, all, we have to bring all that to the table. All this comes into play in the text. For God has entrusted the state with the carrying out of his perfect law. God gave the sword to sinners to govern each other. But it can work in a way that is pleasing to him while imperfect. Romans 13.3 For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Verse 4 For he is God's servant for your good. And that phrase, servant, in Greek, um, we trans it's like that word to deacon elsewhere. Deacon. And I don't mean deacon as generic servant, but when it talks about appointing deacons in the book of Acts, when Paul is writing to Timothy about the qualifications of a deacon or an overseer, this is the word he uses. So the governing authorities are described by the Apostle Paul as a deacon of God, not once but three times in this entire passage. Quite literally, the state is appointed by God to serve according to his leading. However, the state is a deacon who serves in one respect. Government is not the only thing God has instituted. And again, Kuiper is helpful in the synthesis of these principles. And he poses that the church, the family, and the state are all equal institutions of God. That those all came from God and all have their own respective spheres of authority where they operate. And these spheres do not cross or contradict each other. And these spheres, when done right, they form the backbone of a godly society. The church, the family, and the state. When we boil down society and where it goes wrong... It goes wrong in those three areas. And you can do a very deep dive into what God has decreed on those three areas. Um, you can go through Proverbs and Deuteronomy. And much of um, the Old Testament talks about teaching your children these things at the table as you go around the way. And so Kuiper helps us to synthesize these principles and see how they fit together. And he writes, in this independent character, a special higher authority is of necessity involved. And this highest authority, we intentionally call sovereignty in the individual social spheres. In order that it may be sharply and decidedly expressed that these different developments of social life have nothing above themselves but God. And that the state cannot intrude here and has nothing to command in their domain. As you feel at once, this is the deeply interesting problem or question of our civil liberties. So basically, what's, what he's getting at here is that in each of these spheres, the highest authority is God. That God is the God of the state, of the church, and of the family. And how these circles operate, how these little institutions that he's set up operate is ultimately determined by his word. It says in Proverbs, man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy, and after vows to make inquiry. A wise king scattereth the wicked, and bringeth the wheel over them. 
The precondition for society is God and God alone. Thus, a good government is modeled on the understanding that there is a God over us to whom we must give account and who has enumerated its responsibilities. The God has listed what government is and is not to do. And that realistically, that circle of what is within the scope of government is much smaller than a lot of times we think. And God has spoken to what government should be. And this will not be an exhaustive, all-inclusive exposition of every possible scripture. But this is going to be some of the highlights. And I, I would encourage you to go deeper, to consider the Old Testament, read the Old Testament law, read Deuteronomy, read Judges, read these kinds of passages that talk about this. But back to Romans 13, verse 4, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The government sits under the authority of God in all that they do. And since they are appointed by him to enact judgment according to this law, there is authority there. So they're an authority figure that's under authority, but they have authority nonetheless. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We talked last week about resisting the government to obey Christ. And this this section of the passage brings the other side of that equation. Because we do have to be in subjection to avoid God's wrath. That there are times there are times where to go against government would be to incur the wrath of God. And so there is a sense of balance that we have to find this equilibrium in our relationship to the state and vice versa. Since God has appointed government as his deacon, submission is expected. However, we do have to ask the question of how this conduct changes when the government does not recognize their servitude, as Rome did when Paul is writing this. In the time after Romans was written, things got very difficult for the church in Rome. And Rome had taken this very syncretistic model for religion. All these different religions were welcomed and they were affirmed and they were open to them, to use modern terminology. As long as you offered a pinch of incense to Caesar. And you would walk by this point in the town and say, Caesar is Lord. If you were a Christian in Rome at that time, that's a problem. As Doug Wilson once wrote, when there is no God above the state, the state becomes God. And that's exactly what had happened. The highest authority in the lives of those governed. When the true God is recognized, then the law becomes stable. Some, something suitable for finite creatures. This is because we become like what we worship. God is immutable, and worshiping him establishes us in consistency. Doug Wilson said that in a sermon entitled Idols and Tyranny. And so Rome had called for all these, all people to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar to recognize Caesar as Lord. That's a problem because Jesus is Lord. 
And when Peter says in the book of Acts that there is no other name given by which men can be saved, that was appropriating a Roman phrase regarding the emperor to the Christian faith. That was a political statement, make, make no mistake. Because the fact of the matter is, there is a God above the state. And as we discussed last week, when the state abandons God, we don't. Submission to the state is not unconditional. We submit to governments that are in accordance with this blueprint of how God has instructed governments to work. How we act when they don't, however, is not a blanket statement for all, as this passage continues to demonstrate. There is an element of conscience and duty to God which undergirds our response to government. When government is wicked, our response and participation is ultimately an individual question. Because there are elements of submission to government that are a matter of conscience that need to be evaluated on an individual level. There are lines to be crossed and there are lines not to be crossed. I mean, we may disobey the government as it pertains to open-air ministry, but our tactics may change in light of a different scenario, such as taxation. I'm not sitting here telling you to stop paying taxes. That's not a call I can make. So there is um, an element of weighing things individually. Taxes in America go to support much ungodliness, but this passage does not call for either unconditional obedience nor complete disobedience. Likewise, it says that respect and honor should go where it is due. For because of this, verse 6, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God according to this very thing. So pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So, so there is respect and honor where it is due. That ultimately plays into how we relate to both submission and disobedience on this subject. And the early church obeyed the government when it did not interfere with the practices of the church. But when the government tried to transcend God, they pushed back. Which is why it was such a surprise when the, when the Christians would not offer the pinch of incense. Because they had been compliant in a variety of areas and a number of things. And all of a sudden they weren't on this one thing. And that was ultimately part of their witness. This is why many of them stood trial. They wouldn't bow the knee on this point. So in terms of ethics, we weigh each element of obedience to the state individually. And we don't throw off submission entirely because of one piece. That it's, it's complicated. And this is something we each have to work out, whether we are in America or Nigeria. But we still have to take this in context. And again, I refer to Romans 12, verse 17 through 21, which says, Repay, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And I would follow that up with Romans 2, 4 through 6, where despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So God will repay. He will vindicate his people. He will seek retribution for wrongs in a way that we can't top. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. But the judgment of God is the most true, truest, purest form of justice. So revolution is not our M.O. I am I'm convinced, as Augustine was, that the only just war was the conquest of Canaan in the Old Testament. Because that was an, an enactment of God's wrath upon people that were wildly rampant in sin. And that every human conflict since then has at its best been a necessary evil. That it's still evil and it is not whole it is not a holy war as the conquest of Canaan was. That ultimately there is an element of selfishness that plays into every war. And I, I would agree with Augustine that every war we've seen since Canaan was on some level sinful. And therefore, I don't see many biblical concessions for a physical revolution. Because the true revolution that God procures in the midst of such administrations is spiritual. The law is spiritual, and I am of the flesh. And we may walk in the flesh, meaning in the physical form, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Perhaps the man who says this best is none other than the thundering Scott John Knox, a far more capable provocateur than myself. And in his recounting of the Reformation, he writes, Briefly, God hath raised up men in these our days so as to discover the turpitude and filthiness of that Babylonian harlot, talking about Bloody Mary, Queen of England, that her very golden cup, in which her fornication was hid before, is become abominable to all such as trust for the life everlasting. And they have further set so vehement a fire in the very ground of her glory, that is, in her usurped authority, that she and it are both likely to burn to their uttermost confusion. Simply put, the governing bodies are not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, in fact, in their midst. And so when John Knox writes things like that, this smoldering rebuke of the Queen of England, he's also affirming that God is raising up men to stand against that, not with swords, not with weapons of that kind, but with the word of God. That the real revolution here is the advancement of the gospel. It is, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the kingdom of God is, in fact, in the midst of wicked nations. And they will be held accountable for what they did in light of that. How they responded to that as deacons entrusted by God to bear the sword. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, Let us hear the 
Conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. In short, the sin of our present government is their refusal to acknowledge that Christ is Lord over them and that they have been appointed by God to rule according to his standards of both righteousness and wickedness. They have, in their minds, elevated themselves above God. But they will incur judgment. Romans 2, as we read a moment ago, says that we are all storing up wrath in our unrepentance for the coming day of wrath. The centermost creed of Christianity is testified in this. They will incur judgment for denying the Lordship of Christ, as our witness will testify as Christians. The centermost creed of Christianity is that there is another king to whom all kings will bow. And Psalm 2 immediately comes to mind. It says, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, his Mashiach, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. Meaning, let us break away from God. Let's do away with God. As Frederick Nietzsche brazenly said, we have, that God is dead and we have killed him. Which many years later, God would counter by declaring Nietzsche is dead. But, uh, they take counsel together and say, let us break away from God. It says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I said, set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, speaking to Christ, and I shall give thee the nation, the heathen, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Honor the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. The kings of the earth are subject to Christ, to the reign of Christ. And this is virtually how the book of Psalms starts. Zechariah chapter 14 says, The Lord shall be king over the whole earth, and his name shall be one, and we all will know him. Because Christ is Lord even over the government. Our resistance that bears witness to the coming judgment upon all that do not recognize him is the Christian vision, one of the lordship of God over all things. And I, th I can think of no better way to close out than with the Apostles' Creed, which is the basic creed of the... This is the Christian vision. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, meaning he experienced the fullness of a human death. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in a holy, unified Catholic Church and the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. To condense this into one statement, there is another king. There is another king. This world is not all that there is. And regardless of what the state of government may be, there is another king. Christ is ruling at this moment over the nations. And everything that is not, everything that does not honor him in that position of ruling shall be made low. Because those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. That's in Daniel. And the Lord's, the Lord shall hold them in derision, it says in Psalms. God will be honored by the nations. He will be exalted. There's no question about that. Ultimately, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab, links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.